0: John chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding When the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him They have no wine And Jesus said to her Woman That's how I read it What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If we use this story in John chapter 2 in defense of Christian drinking (laughs) or as Jesus' approval of alcohol, we will water down the potency of what's really here. The motive of this miracle is not so shallow. It is not so superficial. As verse 11 makes absolutely clear, this account is here for one reason and one reason alone, for the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. It is not a proof text for drinking. As it has been used for so many decades, centuries now perhaps. If you came tonight hoping to study the issue of drinking, I'm going to send you home with an encouragement to a couple of studies we did back in 2011. If you want to study out the issue of drinking and the scriptures and what the Bible has to say about it and our Christian response to it, go study Proverbs 23. Uh, Study Proverbs 31. We did two messages um, close to each other in our study through Proverbs. Proverbs 23, the message was called, The Drink That Bites Back. That might give you some sense of where that one's going. (laughs) Proverbs 31, The Measure of Righteousness. And I honestly, I seriously, would say go study those if, if you want to study and think about drinking. And in fact, in the Drink That Bites Back teaching, we looked at John 2. We talked about the implications here of Jesus who was perfect causing people to sin by inviting or encouraging their drunkenness, which I don't think is what happened. But again, if you want to study that, go to those other studies. John did not record this incident as a proof text for bibbing wine. He recorded this first miracle of Jesus as the beginning of the revelation of His deity. And that's how we've got to take it. That's how we're going to look at it tonight. Again, verse 11, this beginning of His signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples Believed in Him. Now you're going to see seven signs as we go through the Gospel of John. Actually, if you include the resurrection, that's the greatest of all signs. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But the Greek word sign here is uh, Sameon. Sameon is a public declaration. It could be something as simple as a big red stop sign. That would be a Sameon in the Greek. A natural sign, a sign of direction, or it could be a supernatural sign, as in a miracle or a working that is beyond the natural man. It goes both ways. In this case, it is a supernatural sign, obviously, to change water to wine. This is the first of seven signs John lays out. He only gives seven. He doesn't give eight. He doesn't give six Give seven of them, and here they are, I'll give you the list right now if you want to jot these down, or you could even just make a little notation in your Bible. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is the first sign, water to wine. In John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54 is the second sign, and in that sign, Jesus heals an official son. The third sign, Comes right on its heels in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18, and that is the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Sign number 3. Sign number 4 picks up in chapter 6, the first half of the chapter verses 1 through 14, and it is the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle, that sign that is attested by all four of the gospel, uh, writers. So the feeding of the 5,000 is the fourth sign, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16 and running through verse 21, is the fifth sign walking on the water of the Galilee. The sixth sign is in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the healing of the blind man in the temple. And we find out in that chapter who was really blind, and it wasn't the blind man. Although he was physically blind, we see the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees like like nowhere else. John chapter 9. And then finally, sign number 7 in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 45, raising Lazarus from the dead. Which is interesting that that's the seventh sign, the resurrection of Lazarus. It's almost like the Lord is bringing them all to a uh, culmination there. But those are the seven signs laid out through the Gospel of John. We'll see these. We're going to take these as they come in future studies, Lord willing. But each one of these signs, John chose to include in his Gospel. They actually happened. They're legitimate miracles. But rather than just throwing a bunch out there or doing a chronology... He is chronologically accurate, but he chooses these seven for the purpose of saying, look, I want to give you seven testimonies, seven miracles of Jesus that all go to his deity. That are all things that point out his godness, if you will. And John will say in John chapter 20 verse 30, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, back to this first sign in chapter 2. The sign is not about alcohol. It is about the Almighty. Let's look at it. Let's kind of walk it through. In fact, I'm going to give you uh, an outline right now. Three parts to this outline tonight. Three firsts. And this is the first first. Three firsts tonight. Uh, the first sign. The first Passover. And finally, first impressions. So the first sign, the first Passover, and first impressions, and we begin here with the first sign of Jesus as recorded by John, verse 1 again. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Cana is approximately 18 miles, uh, well no, Kephar Nahum is 18 miles from Nazareth, sorry, uh, Capernaum. Kephar Nahum, the village of Nahum, or village of comfort, which was Jesus' ministry base there in the northwest shore of the Galilee. From there, all the way down across through the Arbel Pass and around down south to Nazareth is about an 18 mile journey. If you go from Nazareth and you start heading toward the Galilee, there's a very specific path, even today, that Jews can walk. You could walk. It's called the Arbel Pass or at least gets to the Arbel Pass, which leads into the Sea of Galilee Basin. But from Nazareth, heading toward the Galilee, you go about five miles and you arrive at Cana. From Cana on into the Galilee and up to kephar Nahum, Capernaum, is another 12 to 13 miles. I tell you that to correct what I said Sunday. I was thinking it was three or four miles from Capernaum to Cana. It's about 12 to 13 miles, which would make even more significant the seeing of Nathanael. If in fact Jesus was in Capernaum 12 to 13 miles away from Nathaniel, who was in Cana. Nathanael was from Cana under his fig tree and Jesus saw him under the fig tree. That's pretty impressive. And we talked about that Sunday and you can go back and, and listen to that if you weren't here. But I want you to know that and understand that Jesus probably settled there in Capernaum and then headed over to Cana for this wedding and it's the third day, and John points that out. It's the third day, probably since Nathaniel's eye-popping encounter with Jesus. You know, since he was seen under the fig tree, and then he meets Jesus, and he's just blown away by this man who he declares the King of Israel. So three days later, but it's the third day, and you all know the significance of the third day—the day of resurrection. And that day is significant throughout the Scriptures. The third day. If you go all the way back to Genesis 22, verse 4, it tells us, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. What place? Mount Moriah. On the third day Abraham and Isaac went up Mount Moriah so that Isaac the son could be sacrificed by Abraham the father. By the end of the third day, Isaac the son would be very much alive. Just as the Son of God is alive on the third day. Interesting. Exodus 19, the Lord told Moses, I'm going to descend from Mount Sinai before the people. And Exodus 19, verse 16 says it came about on the third day. When it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. And a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Scared them to death. Hey, on the third day of the resurrection, the Roman soldiers guarding the grave were scared to death. They trembled to the point of passing out at the resurrection of Jesus. Numbers 19, another third day. This is a a command, actually. Numbers 19, verse 12, regarding the law of purification. Where if you became impure for any reason whatsoever... The purification law stated that one shall purify himself from uncleanness with water on the third day and on the seventh day. The seventh day is an obvious one, the day of completion. But the third day, God inserted that for the law of purification that you would be purified only by the washing that takes place on the third day. 2 Kings 20, verse 5. Hezekiah is mortally ill. He's dying. He's dying. The Lord has has sent the prophet to say, Isaiah, to tell Hezekiah, clean house, get ready, you know, clean up your affairs, you're going to die. Hezekiah twitters like a bird. It tells us that. He's actually tweeting. He was the first user of Twitter and was at that time so upset, the Lord saw that, answered his prayer and said, on the third day, you'll be healed. And on the third day, Hezekiah was healed from his disease. Ezra chapter 6 verse 15 tells us significantly, I believe, the temple was completed on the third day of Adar, which is the month before Nisan, which is the month of Passover. But it was completed on the third day, and that's pointed out in Ezra. Esther, you know the story of Esther. On that momentous event, when Esther took her life in her own hands and went before the king of Persia, it happened on the third day. On the third day, Esther rescued her people Israel, just as on the third day the Son of Man would resurrect to rescue anyone who puts faith in Him. The prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2, says, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. And continuing on through the Scripture, and that's just a sampling, there's more. But continuing on, when you hit the New Testament, every single gospel reference of the third day deals directly with the resurrection of Jesus. Here in John chapter 2, we'll get to in a few minutes, verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Paul comes along and confirms all of this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, note this, according to the Scriptures. According to what Scriptures, Paul? The Hebrew Scriptures. All of those references that I just gave you, and more, pointing to the significance of an event on the third day, Paul says it had to happen on the third day because the Hebrew prophets and the Hebrew writers and the law itself declared the third day as the day of resurrection. It's the day of transformation. And that's the thing to note here. Transformation happens on the third day. That which was dead is made alive. That which was physical is eternal. On the third day... But also notice this. Before we go any further in chapter 2, in John's account, there's someone here in the Gospel of John that you only see two times. And that might not matter. We only see Nathaniel twice. Not a big deal, right? But there's someone else you only see twice. And it's surprising. And it's the mother of Jesus. You only see her here at Cana in Galilee at the wedding feast. And you only see her at Calvary the second time. She is not... Seen in the rest of the Gospel of John. And John never names her, not a single time. He only refers to her as the mother of Jesus. He names three other Marys. He'll talk about Mary, who is a sister to Martha and Lazarus. He'll talk about Mary, the wife of Cleopas. And he'll refer, of course, to Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, And I find that interesting because after 60 years of John processing and thinking through what was most important, what needed to be shared, what would be written in this Gospel, 60 years of sanctification, of walking in the Spirit of the Lord, and John doesn't name the mother of Jesus and only refers to her twice. Even after the crucifixion and resurrection where John takes charge of her, Remember that? Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mom. And from that point forward, John took Mary into his home and cared for her as though she were his own mother. So even with that closeness, John still, in writing his gospel, doesn't name her. And only refers to her as the mother of Jesus two times. Well, if you read it through, Jesus never calls her mom. Jesus never refers to her as mother. Why not? Well, especially here in the Gospel of John all due respect, but Mary is not pertinent to Jesus' divinity, only to his humanity. She was only part of the deal for, you know, carrying the child, uh, of being the vessel that would bring him into the world as flesh, but she was not The carrier of divinity, the creator of divinity, Mary is not, biblically speaking, the mother of God. And so God, Jesus, never refers to her as mother. Verse 3 tells us that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, I joke every time I read this and I say, woman? But Jesus wouldn't say it that way. In fact, this word in the Greek, gune or gyne, which would be familiar to us, it's where we get gynecologists. Gyne is that word. In the Greek, it's not a disrespectful word, it's not a calling out, it's not a negative, it's not pejorative, it's just simply, uh, it, it's like we would say ma'am. It, it's respectful, it's what you would call a married or a betrothed woman in Israel, gune or gane, just a word. Jesus would use that same exact word for her from the cross when he handed her over to John. Saying, woman, behold your son, John 19.26. And to the disciple, behold your mother, not my mother. And we're told from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus never calls Mary his mother because that earthly tie, my friends, was severed when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at baptism. Once his ministry began... You know what Jesus' attitude was toward His family, don't you? Let me read this to you. Mark 3.32, a crowd was sitting around Him, and they said to Him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, He said, Who are my mother and my brothers? That's being rude. He's stating a reality. Looking about at those who were sitting around Him, He said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Gang, there is a blood that runs thicker than the blood of family. It is the blood of Christ. Which is why, and I've heard this from some of you, which is why your church family is sometimes even closer than your natural family. Because blood in Christ is thicker than blood between relatives. I'm not saying that you don't continue to love your family, but for Christ's sake, don't allow the love of family to supersede or override the love of Jesus and His family, which is yours, brothers and sisters. Now, some think, perhaps the reason that Mary brings this up to Jesus, that they're low on wine or that they're out of wine, is because she was the caterer. I guess it's possible. Maybe she was helping out in the kitchen or, or behind the scenes there trying to help the wedding run, but she finds out about it. And others look at this story and they say, well, obviously the story's here to point out Jesus' compassion, because this would be a, a, an embarrassing social faux pas. To run out of wine at a Jewish wedding, you did not do. If you made sure you stocked up at anything or with anything at a Jewish wedding, it was the wine. And so they were in kind of dire straits. But again, the miracle was not here because Jesus was so compassionate. Now, He was compassionate. And He did save face for them in the working of this miracle. But that's not why the miracle was worked. We already know why the miracle happened. For the manifestation of His glory. But at this point, Mary says, they don't have any wine, and he says, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Jesus and we already see this in the second chapter is moving with incredible intentionality he has a goal he has a mercy mission and he has a crucifixion and nothing is going to mess that up so he is very purposeful in what he does in the miracles he does perform and the way he deals with people as we will see his hour had not yet come verse 5 his mother said to the servants Whatever He says to you, do it. And I've shared this before for our Catholic brothers and sisters and friends. Whatever He says to you, do it. The last recorded words of Mary. So if you want to listen to Mary, listen to that. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And verse 6, Now there are six stone water pots which were set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Draw some out now and take the water to the head waiter or take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now it is so interesting to start opening up commentaries about this. The things that people come up with To explain this story. That actually nothing happened. It was more of a joke. You know. That that, that Jesus, because He didn't want to manifest anything, was playing around. And that the waiters, as they dipped and they saw it, was just water in on the joke. And the head waiter goes, oh, you brought the good wine out now. (laughs) Who comes up with this stuff? I mean, it's guys who have way too much time on their hands. The issue here again, is not about intoxication, it's about the manifestation of His glory. The moment John says that, you know that a miracle has taken place. You know that something supernatural is going on. So the question is, what kind of sign is water to wine? Think about what I said about the third day earlier. The water-to-wine miracle, gang, it is a sign of divine transformation. Divine transformation, a change takes place that is impossible by any means other than supernatural, other than divine. In this miracle, Jesus reveals His sovereignty over matter, over the elements, by taking something as elemental as water and shifting it without even touching it, mind you. He just says, fill the pots, dip the ladle, pour it into the cup, and take it to the head waiter. This is remarkable. And it was not watered down or bitter wine. It was the good stuff. There was good wine. The best, the freshest. Now, wine drinkers today would not say that the freshest wine is the best. Wine drinkers in the first century, however, Did. Historians like Horace and Pliny tell us very specifically that good wine was the wine that was immediately taken from the grapes. Good was considered the sweetest grape juice. The best of Welch's. And that's what I believe, that's what I think is going on here. Now, you know, again, we can argue that, but that's not the point of the miracle. McGregor says it is an axiom of our gospel that the transformation of the symbolical into the real can only come about with the bestowal of the Spirit, which in turn could not take place until Jesus' death. So this miracle is symbolic of what is going to happen. The miracle itself happened. Water transformed into wine. There was a transformation. But it's symbolic of the greater transformation to come. Well, what would make you say that? Let me ask you a couple of questions here. Why use stone water pots that were used only for Jewish pur- purification? What is Jesus doing here? These jars are for the sanctification rituals. Fill them with water. And the water changes to wine. Transformation, sanctification taking place because at the crucifixion, it is Jesus' blood that now will sanctify It's His blood, by the way, that wine is representative of in the Scriptures. The blood of Christ. The water becomes the wine. The blood now sanctifies purification that is absolutely transformative. And that's what I believe this miracle represents. As the first of the seven. John chooses this one and says, This first miracle starts the ball rolling at the very beginning. Jesus points out, shows, reveals in a symbolical but absolutely supernatural, miraculous way what will happen at the end of the three years of ministry. Transformation. C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles, which is a great book to read, excellent theology throughout, but he calls this a miracle of the old creation. And the way he describes it is he says that Jesus miraculously, supernaturally, sped up the natural process, making wine instantly. Fill the water pots with water, instant wine. There's no such thing as instant wine. I mean, you need a good year, you need good barrels, you need good grapes, you need the process for the wine to get to where we would say, at least in our culture, that's really fine wine. Jesus did it instantaneously. And so, Lewis says he sped up the natural process. Let me ask you this. How long, typically, does it take for water to turn into wine? This is not... All due respect to Lewis, this is not a speeding up of the normal natural process. It's transformation. It is changing something into something else that it was not before nor could it evolve into. And I encourage you to try this at home. (laughs) Pour a glass of water, put it on the counter, give it a year. You come back and tell me what took place. Again, with nothing but His own divine volition, Jesus intends this change and it happens. It manifests His glory in that Jesus came to transform lives in the same way that water transformed to wine transformation from watered down to rich and strong from bland to sweet and sparkling from the old order to the new order of things bruce says christ has come into the world to fulfill the old order by a new worship in spirit and truth which surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water We've gone to trying to drink water primarily in my house, and I gotta tell you, it's not a wine water problem for me, it's a Pepsi problem. Because at fifty years of age, there are certain things, certain foods, that you don't have without a good Pepsi, or I'll go Coke, that's alright too. Pizza. Water with pizza? (laughs) Cheryl, are you kidding me, sweetheart? Water with tacos? Water with any fast food whatsoever. Well, you shouldn't be eating fast food. Yeah, that's why I drink Pepsi with it, to make all that taste go away as quickly as possible. But water, you know, and I, I actually have grown to enjoy the taste of water, but there's not much taste to it. It's just, it's refreshing. But from water to wine, from the old to the new... Brothers and sisters, it's the same power. Jesus manifested here in a natural way, supernaturally, showing us something in the natural to show us something in the spiritual. How He is transforming us from glory to glory. That with the resurrection of Jesus, the transformative process began. And the way you get on that bandwagon is you say, I believe in You, Lord. And from the day of your belief, you are in the transformation process. Until the day you die, or the day we hear Jesus shout, Come up here, we are being transformed. By the way, what single most important person is missing from this story of the wedding feast? (laughs) There's no bride. Where's the bride? The groom's there. The servants are there. The head waiter is there. The mother of Jesus is there. Where's the bride? I can't prove this. But I'll tell you what, in a spiritual sense, the bride is the water made wine. The bride of Christ... The transformed one. Ephesians 5.25, we're told, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And Paul says, the mystery is great, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The bride. And one last thing on this, remember what Jesus said about wine at the last Passover. He said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, my bride, with you in my Father's kingdom. The first sign. Verse 12 tells us after this, He went down to Capernaum, kephar Nahum. I just like saying that. He and His mother and His brothers and disciples... And they stayed there a few days. So again, the village of Nahum, Nahum's name, Nahum the prophet that we studied, meaning comfort. And some think that Nahum came from that village, which is where it originally got its name. But they're on the northwest shore of Lake Canaret, the Galilee. I love Capernaum. Many of you have been there. You've seen Capernaum. It is, it's just a beautiful place. It's quiet. It's restive, even with the crowds. There to visit it, even with Mary's spaceship, you know, or Peter's mother-in-law's spaceship. There's a huge structure that sits over the the ruins of of Peter's mother-in-law's house, and it's um, bizarre. I stand there, expecting literally every single time for it to take off, because that's what it looks like, <laughs> and off it goes. But they're in Capernaum. It's a beautiful, quiet place, and Capernaum we recognize as the headquarters, HQ for Jesus during his ministry, because he kind of headquartered there more than anywhere else. There in the Galilee. And he went out. And there were other cities, obviously, that he visited, but it was from there. John 6.24 tells us the crowd got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Because the people at that time understood Capernaum to be kind of his, his home base, even though Jesus didn't have a home to call his own. Well, not long after their arrival at at Capernaum, they head back out. Verse 13 tells us they have to head south because the Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember, you always go up to Jerusalem. From anywhere in Israel, if you are traveling to Jerusalem, even if you're going from north to south, you go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is that significant. And Jesus is headed there, and we are in now the second part of tonight's study, the first Passover. The first Passover. We learn from John, and it's interesting, if John had never written this Gospel, we never would have known this. That this event that we're about to read happened at the first Passover. And in fact, that Jesus went to all three Passovers during the three years of his ministry, and I would submit to you during his entire life. We know he was at Passover when he was 12 years old. We know it was the custom of his family, as it would be the custom of good Jewish people in the land in the day. But we're told in John, John chapter 2 verse 13, he goes up to Jerusalem for Passover, the first Passover. In John chapter 6 verse 4, he goes up to Jerusalem again, the second Passover. And then finally in John chapter 11, verse 55, he goes up to Jerusalem the third time for the third Passover. He goes to one each year of his ministry. That's important. Because the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke only mention the last Passover. They pass over the first two. They don't mention them at all. Now we obviously would assume Jesus being a good Jew would be at Passover every year even during his ministry, but the synoptics are the only ones, they only mention that he does this at the end. What's interesting then is the last Passover that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about, what Jesus does there is strangely familiar to what John tells us Jesus did at the first Passover that he went to, verse 14. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves he said, take these things away stop making my father's house a place of business his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me So, between John and the other three evangelists, we know with certainty that Jesus cleared the temple at the beginning and at the end of His ministry. This was something He did twice. Clearing out the temple to start the ball rolling, to start things off. And then again at the end, he comes back in, and three years later, they're back to their old tricks. So he clears the temple a second time, bookends of sanctification on either side of his ministry as Jesus goes to the temple. Well, that's just your interpretation. No, it's not. It is biblical interpretation. It's sound doctrine. That's what the Bible teaches And that's why I went to the links of showing you, John points out three different Passovers, and at the first Passover he talks about the cleansing of the temple, as the other Gospel writers say it happened at the last Passover. So it's not a question of which one was it, It's the answer is both. Because he cleared the temple twice. Twice. There are two terms here. That are translated money changers. All we see in the English is money changers, but there are two different terms used. In verse 14, the word for money changers is Kermitistes. Kermitistes. Just think Kermit the Frog and you'll get it. Okay? So you got the Kermits here, and Kermitistes means small coin dealer. Someone who deals in small coins. In verse, uh, 15, The very next verse, it mentions money changers again, but now it's a different group of guys. It's the kolubistes, and kolubistes means a currency exchanger. So you've got those who will deal in small coins, and then you have those who are the exchanger of coins, and here's how it worked. The kermit, the frogs, the kermitistes, the small coin dealers would only deal, when you came up to temple, would only deal in Tyrian drachmas. Okay, the drachma was the name of the coin from Tyre. Why? Because it was the purest silver around. So the Tyrian drachma was the only kind of coin that they would accept, the small coin dealers. So the people had to then go over to the money changers, the currency exchangers, to exchange whatever currency they had into Tyrian drachmas, so then they could make their purchases and do what they needed to do on the Temple Mount. Many people traveled from great distances all around the land of Israel to come up for Passover. And they wouldn't be able to bring either the animals for sacrifice or other necessities for sacrifice with them. They had to purchase it there. They also had to pay the temple tax, which everybody paid when you went up to temple. But the temple tax was only accepted in Tyrian drachmas. So you had to change your money to take care of business. The Kolobist days, the money changers, the currency exchangers, history tells us charged 12.5% interest on every exchange. And in addition, the Mishnah says that this whole process of money changing began on the 25th day of Adar, the month before Nisan. Passover was the 14th, 15th of Nisan. So 20 days this was going on, but it also went on through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So for the next seven days, so for 30 days roughly, the money changers were in the temple uh, doing this bilking of the people of God. And to make matters worse, the money exchange was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. So all all the non-Jews were watching the people rip off their own people. They saw this going on in the temple. You have to wonder what they thought. No wonder Jesus was so ticked off. God's people are being ripped off and the outsiders who need salvation desperately are watching this kind of behavior among God's people and probably getting a good laugh at it. You do not turn my father's house into a place of robbery. Knock it off. Stop this. I Man, I've told you, that's one of the Blu-rays I'm going to check out in the heavenly library and watch. And that's Jesus clearing the temple. And I'm going to watch part one and part two. Because I want to see Him do it. I mean, John describes it. He's turning over tables. He makes a cord of whips. And note this, it says that He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. They were all getting driven out. It's the one time in Scripture where you see Jesus drive people. (laughs) Usually the Spirit leads. Usually Jesus goes first and calls people to follow. Right here, He is driving. He drives people away from sin. He drives unrighteousness away from His Father's house. No wonder, like I said, Jesus was... Fired up. And we see a fulfillment here of a 400 year old prophecy from Malachi. We just talked about a few weeks back. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Which Jesus did on the first Passover immediately upon the beginning of his ministry. John adds, the followers of Jesus saw and scripturally recognized his passion for his father's house. Note that in verse 17, they remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, that's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. Listen to it. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Well, David wrote that. But the application here is to Jesus. Do you think Jesus was popular among the religious merchants of His day? How do you think the local Christian bookstore would feel if Jesus came in? I wonder how Jesus would behave in the local Christian bookstore. Would He start clearing the shelves? I, you know, I'm not opposed to Christian bookstores. Please don't get, this, get me wrong in this. And, and I think there's a lot of good ministry that takes place. But I think there's an awful lot of selling that goes on as well. And, uh, and it's unfortunate. Jesus never sold the gospel. He shared it. He tells us the same thing. Don't, don't sell the gospel. Don't peddle the word of God. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5. We're not peddlers. In 2 Corinthians 2, look it up. We are not peddlers of the Word. We, we speak as from sincerity. We come to share eternal life with you. This is not something I, I, that I'm trying to get something out of. I just know how good it is. And Christians take note. If you would have zeal for His house, I think that's something we can legitimately be zealous about. Protecting his house against a place of selling. What does that look like? Don't think I haven't given it a lot of thought. And your shepherds haven't given it a lot of thought when it comes to this building. The selling of the gospel. We are called to share the Gospel. But, again, recognize this, understand, because He says, zeal for your house will consume Me. Psalm 69. But the latter part of that psalm says, and, and, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon Me. There's a there's collateral damage when you share the Gospel. That by the very simple sharing of the Gospel, you will invite reproach. That's the deal. It's part of what you and I should assume. Cheryl and I started watching the new Left Behind movie last night. How many of you all have seen that? Did you like it? Yeah, me either. I'm, <laughs> I'm like an hour into it and it took an hour for, for the rapture to happen. I'm like, come on, that's the let ba- Just let's get to it. <laughs> I felt like I'm waiting like I do every day. You know? <laughs> well, Why did I even mention that? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. The rest with the thing with the... Oh, oh, I know, I know. So, Chloe, one of the main characters who is not a believer, and her dad, Rayford, is not a believer. He's the pilot, and they're not believers. Mom and and little brother are, and they get taken up. So Chloe at the very beginning, before all this has happened, before this the rapture event has taken place in the movie, is walking through this airport and here's a woman who is preaching to this guy. And I'll tell you why I didn't like this or haven't liked it so far. It's because the Christians look like idiots. Why do they do that? I, I don't get that. I, I I to this day I have not seen a Christian in an airport arguing with someone about the gospel. I haven't seen that. Now, does it happen? Maybe it does. But that's the reality is, if you are going to present the gospel, you will bring reproach upon yourself. And there's even reproach in a movie that is supposed to support the whole idea of the rapture of the church and and Christianity. So the reproach comes. Paul quotes the last clause of Psalm 69 verse 9. John quotes the first clause, again, zeal for your house will consume me. Paul quotes the second clause, Romans 15, verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. So there's two sides of the same coin here. Zeal for my father. Zeal for my father's house. Zeal for the church. Zeal to share the gospel. Passion to let people know what I believe. But on the other side of that same coin, the reproaches of those who reproach Him will fall on me. Both will take place. By the way, did you catch Psalm 69 verse 9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. John writes it in the future tense. Zeal for your house will consume me. What does that tell us? Two things. This is going to happen again. Zeal for his house will happen a second time at that last Passover. And it will consume him. The same action of clearing the temple gang will motivate the death of Jesus. We're told in Mark 11.15, the chief priests and the scribes heard about this. They heard about the cleansing of the temple and they began seeking how to destroy him. That, you could make a case for that being the straw that broke the Pharisees' back. That is it. We will not put up with this Galilean prophet anymore. He is toast. And so zeal for his father's house did, in fact, consume Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Verse 18. And the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. So when he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now as I said earlier, the greatest sign of all signs is the resurrection. John doesn't really even include it in the seven. He, it's a separate event because it's so much more glorious even than the miracles, even than the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was greater. Why? Because Lazarus would die again. Jesus did not. Because Lazarus needed the power of Christ to raise Him from the dead, Jesus raised Himself. Well, but Rick, I've read where the Scriptures say the Father raised Jesus. Well, yeah, He did. Well, wait a minute. I've read Scriptures that say the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Well, yeah, He did. Well, I've heard that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Of course. Yes. Trinity. Three and one. On the third day. Working together. That's how it works. But there's another subtle word change here. Again, that we miss in English. And it's the word temple. Temple. In verse 14, where it says He came into the temple, it's the word Heron. Heron in the Greek, which refers to the entire temple complex. He came... Into the temple. That is the complex itself. But the word in verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, is a different word. It's naos. And you might want to take note of this. It's highly significant. Naos is the word that the Jews use specifically for the sanctuary. They didn't call the temple complex naos. They called that heron. But the sanctuary itself, which would include the nave, the holy place, and the holy of holies. That structure. And by the way, that structure was completed first. When the Jews say it took 46 years to build this, it was actually still under construction, even in the days of Jesus. Some of you know this. It was under construction all the way to A.D. 63. The whole temple complex was complete and stood finished for seven years before Rome destroyed it. But in Jesus' day, 46 years, it had been an ongoing process, but the sanctuary itself, the naos, was complete. And that's what Jesus refers to, destroy this naos. And in three days, I will raise it up again. That is beautiful. Jesus refers to the temple of His body as the sanctuary. As the Holy place as the holy of holies. And it's the same word Paul uses to describe our bodies. First Corinthians 3:16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? You are the sanctuary of God. No, you're not the temple complex. Many of us could say I'm not that complex. It's the sanctuary. Your body is the sanctuary of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well of course, the Spirit of the Lord in Solomon's temple did not dwell in the temple complex. He dwelt in the most holy place. The holy of holies. In the sanctuary. And Paul, referring to what Jesus has already said, Jesus says, my body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, your bodies are the holy place. Your bodies are the holy of holies where the Spirit of God dwells, where the Shekinah glory of God dwells by His Holy Spirit. The sanctuary. Uh, that, I don't know if that does for you what it did for me today, but it blows my mind how the Bible here equates our bodies with the holy of holies. And I began wondering, what do I bring into the holy of holies? What do I invite in? Be it through my eyes or my ears, my mouth. What do I invite in to the Holy of Holies? The most holy place. How do I adorn the Holy of Holies? How do I prepare this body to be home to the Spirit of the Living God? Well, that all took place in the first Passover. The apostles saw this. They heard what he said. He said, in three days, destroy this sanctuary. I will raise it up. When he resurrected, they remembered. It was all brought to mind. Now we come to the last thing I want to share with you tonight. Part three, first impressions. The last three verses of chapter two may actually be, some believe, an introduction to chapter three. Actually belong in chapter three as an introduction to the after hours meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, which we won't get to tonight. There's too much there. It's kind of like chapter one. But verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now contextually, what this is telling us is Jesus was not revealing his true nature. Not yet. It's the beginning of his ministry. Remember? Remember? The cross was part of the reason that He came. But the other three and a half years leading up to the cross was to seek and save the lost. It was to preach the gospel. It was to preach the kingdom. It was to reach to people and to change lives such that when He died, when He resurrected and ascended, the church would sprout and would grow. Jesus knew He needed that three-year ministry prior to His death. Resurrection. So it was not yet the time. And so John is pointing out Jesus was not telling anyone who he was. He wasn't giving them that. He didn't entrust himself, you know this, he didn't even entrust himself fully to the disciples, to the apostles, until two and a half years in. It was at Caesarea Philippi, six months to go in his ministry, when Jesus for the first time opened up the door and began to speak plainly and clearly to his apostles about what he was going to do. Why there? Because at Caesarea Philippi, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus didn't reveal himself or entrust himself to the apostles until they first confessed faith in him by their own choice. Until then, it was on an as-needs-to-know basis He did not entrust himself. Matthew 16, verse 20, after Peter's confession says, Then he warned the disciples they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So right there he goes, okay guys, you got it. Yes, I am Messiah. All your questions, all your wonderings, all your queries of the last two and a half, three years, (laughs) I'm the guy. But don't tell anyone. He probably also knew the apostles, especially Peter, could only keep this secret about six months. So, from that time, we're told Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. At that point and on forward in his ministry, Jesus is absolutely clear about what's about to take place, as well as who he is. He entrusts himself to them, but not until then. He paces His ministry right to the climax of Calvary. John 8.28, He said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Or literally, then you will know that I am. Which, by the way, is the reason we have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because until a person sees Jesus lifted up and believes, they can't have faith in Him. They, They can't have a part of Him. And He will not entrust Himself until we see Him at the cross and believe in His resurrection. But here's what I want you to get. And it's, this is something that has, has stuck with me for years. Years and years. 20 or 30 years. In fact, it's pretty. Much, I think I read this and began to chew on these words at the very beginning of ministry for me. And I found it so fascinating because it just didn't seem like Jesus. He would not entrust Himself to them because He knew Him. He knew what was in them. So he was keeping it close to the vest. And I took that as an example. As some wisdom. As a way to live life. Because these are words, believers, these are words of caution to you and to me. These are words of shrewdness as to how to walk in a very dark and evil world. I'm not talking about being distrusting of people or closed off or withdrawn, but there is a holy caution here that I think we ought to be aware of. Bruce put it this way, "...he who is the Word incarnate has immediate apprehension of the mysteries and complexities of human nature. He does not depend on spoken words as the index to inward thoughts and feelings. The hidden depths of every heart lie open to his penetrating insight." What Bruce is saying is not that Jesus was afraid of humanity or confused by humanity or didn't understand humanity, but because he understood us so well, when he walked on this earth, he was cautious, he was shrewd, and he was insightful. The way he went about his ministry, not with anxious apprehension, but with shrewd insight into the heart of man. What was it that Jesus saw in their hearts that made him so careful with his words, with his behavior, even with the idea of entrusting himself to anyone. Side note, who was the first person he entrusted himself to? You remember? John chapter four. We will meet her. A woman at the well at Samaria is the first person he says, I who speak to you am he. It's me. She says, we believe Messiah is coming and he doesn't even wait for her to say, are you him? He says, I know, it's me. She's the first person that he completely honestly says, I am the Messiah. And a city was saved. Mm -hmm. But we see how he is insightful. He knew that by telling this woman salvation would come to this people by the well of Sakkar, Amazing. Even his own apostles weren't getting that clear a record. They were out at McDonald's getting lunch. You know? So here we are. What are the things? I'm just going to give you two things and and we'll be done tonight. Two things. The list could be much longer about what he saw in the heart of man that made, made Jesus stand back and go, I'm not entrusting myself to anyone just yet. Number one, the heart, you know this, is naturally wicked. And Jesus saw it. Why would you entrust yourself to wickedness? Now, none of us would. We look around and we go, okay, I will entrust myself to my wife, my husband, my kids, my friends, people I know, I'll entrust myself to. And I would say, be careful, because they're wicked. Because we all have that sin nature. And there is wickedness in the heart of man. It is more deceitful than all else. Jeremiah 17.9, desperately sick, Who can understand it? Only the Lord. And so Jesus knows this. By the way, Okay, I'm giving a political opinion here. I know I never do this. I'm going to do it tonight. I personally think the U.S. State Department should read and study the Koran. I think everybody making military decisions, making defense decisions, ought to read the Quran to understand the mindset of the enemy. You mean you mean Islam? Yeah. You mean Muslims? I've said this before. I'm not anti-Muslim. They're people who are lost. But I am anti-Islam. And it makes absolutely no sense to me. How do you fight an enemy you cannot or you refuse to understand? It's foolishness. Jesus says, "Understand the heart of man." And and he would say to us as followers of his tonight, "Understand the heart of man." When you go to share the gospel with someone, you will be reproached. You're going to bring reproach on yourself. Understand that. Don't be shocked. Don't be upset. Don't be worried it's gonna happen. Know who you're talking to and do it with wisdom. Sometimes there is a time where you don't talk anymore. You know, you're casting pearls before swine. Well, oh, that is so arrogant, Pastor Rick. Well, I was swine. I can still act like swine. We all come from that place of the sin nature. Don't think that just because someone's smiling at you that they're on your team. The heart is naturally wicked. And you cannot fight an enemy that you don't know or you don't understand. Jesus understood the wickedness in the heart of man. If we assume the goodness in the heart of man, and here's the Islam connection. If we just make a patent declaration that Islam is a religion of peace and leave it there, we will never, ever, as a country, be able to fight The ideology that drives ISIS and Al-Qaeda. We we will lose because we will not get it. You have to look and see what is there, what's behind it. And by the way, I also think everybody in the State Department ought to be issued a Bible. (laughs) Go ahead, see what I believe. Read it. Look at the founder, as I said a week or two ago. Understand what this is all about. Assume that there is goodness in the human heart, my friends, and they will crucify you. Will they crucify Jesus? Yeah. But He knew. And that was part of the plan all along. But there's something else here that I think concerned Jesus and it may surprise you. It should concern you as His people as well. Not only is the heart naturally wicked, but the heart is innately worshipful. Worshipful. There was an immediate, if not superficial, response to Jesus at the first Passover. Immediately people were jumping on the bandwagon. Automatically people are believing in Him, following after Him, worshiping Him. And we watch Jesus, and watch this as we go through John's Gospel. He has to sidestep worship all the way through. Not because He's not worthy of it but because he has to caution people against it or they will miss who he really was for who they wanted him to be. So worship was an issue. John 6.15, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Can you imagine? You're going to be king whether you want to or not. Give the crown. Come on! Give him a scepter, you sit down. (laughs) Like they could force the king of heaven to be their king, but they were thinking this, he perceived that, and he withdrew to a mountain by himself alone. Again, not because he didn't deserve to be worshipped as king. Absolutely, he did, but it wasn't time. He was not ready to entrust himself. And God knows this there is an ugly underbelly to worship. There's a negative side. And it's called flattery. And if you would be discerning and wise, do not entrust yourself to the flatterers. Because there's danger there. Feels good, you know, but watch out for it. Romans sixteen seventeen, Paul said, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Jesus was never unsuspecting, neither should we be. In Jude's one chapter epistle, verse 16, he said, these are grumblers. Fine, I know none of you are grumblers, but watch out for them. They're out there. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. These are those who worship quickly, flatter flagrantly, celebrate celebrity, and then they turn around and they flog you in the back. Be careful. Watch who you entrust yourself to. And how you go about it. We live, and I'm not meaning this to be funny or joking at all, we live in the American idol culture. So I was talking with someone about this, I think it was Mike Hoffman the other day, that our presidential elections are not about who the best man is, our presidential elections are about my party winning. The most votes, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna keep calling in as many times as I can. You know, the biggest dollars, the biggest bucks, it's all a popularity contest. And that's the cultural mindset of Americans. Well, really, worldwide, it's that, it's that worship aspect of the heart. Like we've talked about, the human heart was made to worship. It is We have a need to look to something or someone greater, or, or that we perceive as being greater than ourselves. So we worship so easily, so quickly. Oh, the stars. They're not stars. They're people. Who are messed up. Why are we ever shocked when their lives fall apart? But that's the culture we live in where everyone worships something or someone. Jesus comes along and he recognizes this and he shows us the wisdom of spiritual discernment. I've shared before that if there's any one spiritual gift that I would covet above all others, that's it. Discernment. The wisdom of spiritual discernment. To know where people are coming from. To understand where we're going. To discern spirits. That is something of the Lord and something that is not of the Lord. Whoa, you might say. Aren't Christians supposed to be open to all people? Aren't you supposed to be the nice guys I think it's interesting 2 John verses 10 and 11 John writes if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching that is the gospel of Jesus Christ do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds well that's not very nice we were not called to be nice we were called to love deeply deeply to worship Jesus passionately, to share the gospel freely, but to do so wisely, intelligently, shrewdly. Let me give you one more example and we're almost through here. We're having a gate built at the end of the driveway. I'm not happy about it. I don't want it. We're doing everything we can to make it match with the barbed wire fence that we're going to put up. No, I'm kidding. I don't like the idea of having a gate at all because the church is here to receive people, right? To be open to people. That's why we're here, to minister to this neighborhood. But we're having, you know, a gate put up. We're going to try and make it look at least like it's somewhat inviting. It'll be open, you know, early morning to, you know, when the last person's here at night. But we have to do it. I don't want to do it. But it's necessary. Why? Well, because we're in a remote location. Because there have been, sometimes, since we've opened the doors of the church, where we've had one or two of our female staff here by themselves, and there's been some threat. Some danger. Some discomfort. There have been four wheelers who have come onto the property at night when no one's here and just torn up the, the whole driveway we were here at. I think it was the first week that we were in here was totally torn up by someone who got out there four-wheeling. Now, I like four-wheeling with the rest, but do it out on Highway 20. <laughs> Drug use is rampant on the island. What better place to meet and sell drugs late at night than this property when there's no one here? Back in the trees where the cops can't see you. So we have to be wise, we have to be shrewd, we have to be discerning, we have to say, hey, we are here to reach the lost for Jesus, but we also have a responsibility not to be stupid. And so the gate's going up. What I believe the Lord would tell us here is, put a gate on your heart. A gate that you open with, wise, with wisdom, with shrewdness. That you are aware of who you are entrusting yourself to. What you are entrusting about faith and about the Lord. Because the reproach of those who reproached Him will fall on you. I'm not saying be discerning because you are afraid. I'm not saying to be paranoid either. Paul explains it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll just read it to you. We've read this actually many times, but it is so significant. And I think it's a parallel passage to exactly what John wrote about Jesus not entrusting himself to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Yeah, just listen to this. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And the word appraised there is anakrino in the Greek and it means judged. They're spiritually judged or they're spiritually examined. So someone who's living in the flesh, who's living as the natural man, the natural woman, doesn't understand spiritual stuff because they're not looking at it from a spiritual perspective. They're looking at it from a natural perspective. And the natural perspective does not make sense out of spiritual things. It just seems weird. It seems like foolishness. So, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined, spiritually appraised. But, he who is spiritual appraises or examines all things. He who is spiritual, put another way, judges all things. We are called to judge. Not to be judgmental, but to be of sound judgment, of sound discernment. We appraise all things, and note this, yet He Himself is appraised by no one. What does that mean? It means I'm not examined by anyone but the Lord. He alone examines my heart. He alone is my judge. But spiritually I am to examine things and to think it through and to be wise with them. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ in the sanctuary of our bodies. Spirit of the Lord. And so discernment, wisdom, and shrewdness even to the point of who we entrust ourselves to, comes by the Holy Spirit. By spiritually examining the world around us and looking at it from a spiritual and not a natural perspective. And John says, that's what Jesus was doing. Last question. What does it take? Ultimately, what does it take for Jesus to entrust Himself to someone John fourteen twenty one, Jesus says, He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father and I will love him and will disclose Myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. Jesus is saying, and I get this, if you love me, I will entrust myself to you.